Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity that you've, you've given me to speak to these young men. Lord, I know that in this culture, in our time, in this world, that they face many temptations and many attacks of the devil, of their own flesh, their own hearts, Lord. And um, it's hard to live for Jesus as a man today in our culture, Lord. And I pray that this uh, sermon, uh, specifically this word from you in 1 Samuel, would speak directly to their hearts, that you would convict them in order that you would break them and crush them in order to build them up in Jesus, to make them stronger men of God. And I pray for the young sixth grader to the senior here, Lord, that their ears would be open to your word tonight. And that for the next three weeks in this sermon and next week's sermon and the following, Lord, that as we speak directly to these young men, that they would uh, be attentive and that you would do a mighty work in their hearts, Lord. Give us an army at this church of young men that love Jesus and, and spread the gospel like no other uh, time before, God. I, I know that you can do it. All you need to do is capture our hearts, Lord. And so I pray you would do that t- tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. What's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? <laughs> like it's like one of the things that keep you up at night like i can't believe i did that right and like you'll be walking like one day just randomly and it'll come to your mind you'll be reminded you're like i can't believe i did that right and you feel terrible you want to share uh do we have a boundary <laughs> <laughs> let's see you can share with your life group how about that all right <laughs> um, since there are you know different age groups in here um i could think of a few things that's definitely more than embarrassing that I would not, that would make me blush, you know, like my rapping career in high school, you know, I thought I was going to make it, you know, you know, I, those things are long gone unless Steve Jobs has them hidden away somewhere. Like I swear I deleted them off everything. So unless Apple is not deleting all of our content, like when I hit delete and they're holding it for some reason, I don't know. Yeah. So you never know. I don't know what he said, but I'm just going to keep moving on. Um, but yeah, those, those things make me blush, right? I think when, when we think about things that are most embarrassing, they usually have something to do with us and people, right? Being embarrassed in front of other people. Um, if we stop about and think about our answers, the things that we fear the most, like <laughs> um, have to do with looking like a fool in front of people. We fear what people think and their opinion uh, controls us. And this kind of fear uh, that I'm describing here is what is called the fear of man. Fear of man. And that's what I want to talk about today. Now, we all get embarrassed. That's not necessarily a sin to feel embarrassed. But the idea that uh, the, the fear of being rejected, the fear of, of being seen or looked at as a failure, um, the fear of, of being, I don't know, uh, made fun of by other people, or you're always thinking about other people's concerns and perceptions about you, what they think about you. You're always comparing yourself to other people. That is called fear of man. We all have it, and it's a sin that plagues young men. We are so captivated by the culture. Whatever our friends do, we will do. 
Whatever the culture says is the right thing to do, we will do. If our friend says jump off a cliff, if we're young enough, we'll do it with them, right? We just, we just do it. We don't even think. It's because it's fun. It, yeah, until so both your legs are broken and you're dead, right? Um, so, yeah. sure, sure, maybe, maybe, um, if you trust in Jesus. But young, young, young men, we're, we're, we're consumed by a fear of man. We're controlled by other people and what people think. And it's sad because the fear of man keeps you from fearing God. And it prevents you from being the men of God or the men that God wants you to be. It prevents you from leading. If you fear people so much, you won't be able to lead. If you're trying to find your satisfaction in people, you won't love people. If you're so insecure about what people think of you, you can't lead them. You can't love them. And this idea that we have to live for the approval of man crushes us. And I want my hope for you is that you would live godly lives, not fearing man, but fearing God. And that's the title of my sermon, Fear God, Not Man. So if there's one thing, your mom says, hey, what'd you learn tonight? You're going to say, to fear God and not man. And then you're going to go do 20 push-ups, all right? Because it's awesome. It fires me up. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. And I want, to talk, I want you to look at... Uh, uh, a story of a, of a man, a king, who was plagued by the fear of man. And it led to his absolute destruction and downfall. As you turn there, I want to give you context. First Samuel begins with the birth of Samuel. Anyone know who Samuel was? He was a prophet. Good job. And a... No, he was not a king. He was a judge. But he worked in the temple, so he was a priest. He was a prophet priest. Make sure you know that. Samuel was dedicated to the Lord as a young child by Hannah. He is the final judge coming out of the book of Judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you're not allowed to watch rated R movies, it's probably a good thing. But if you want to read a rated R book, just read the book of Judges. All right, It's absolutely insane. All right, Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They... It's the word of God. So you can read it with your parents if, if you're scared. Um, I recommend that, actually. Um, it, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They're, it's plagued with wickedness, and they have all these judges, and what they really need is a king. And so on the back end of Judges then comes the book of Ruth, which ends with the word David. Right? So it's pointing forward. And 1 Samuel is written to show the history of the first king and ultimately the the prototype king, David, about his life. And so we see, in short, in, in 1 Samuel 1-7, through 7, Israel re- uh, rejects God's leadership as their king. And so they want to be like the other nations, and they appoint Saul, this guy named Saul, to be the king. And he's got all the makings of a king. He looks like Thor, right? He's tall, he's got long hair, he's handsome, but... He lacks all the qualities that a godly king needs. He's dishonest. He's prideful and arrogant. And he, his, his ears are deaf to the Lord. Not really, but just deaf to obeying God. And in chapter 13, Saul disobeyed God by making a false sacrifice. And God rips the kingship from him. He says, it's going to be given to another. And so now we're in chapter 15. And let's walk through the text. Samuel's given an opportunity to redeem himself here but let's see what happens and samuel said to saul the lord sent me to anoint you king over his people israel now therefore listen to the words of the lord 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go, here's God's command to Saul. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Let me stop here. I'm going to draw a few points out and we're just going to keep walking through the text. The first thing is we see God's just command. God's just command. Because you read this and I know that you squirm a little bit because I do. Like, wow, that's pretty brutal. How can a God, a loving God, command such a horrific thing to happen? For Saul to take out the Amalekites and to devote every single aspect of their lives, every person, every animal, to absolute destruction. First thing you need to know when you come to hard parts in the scripture like this is that scripture is, uh, <clears throat> scripture is written to give you the truth, not necessarily what you want to hear. All right, First Samuel is a book narrating history. So good historians, they just tell you the truth of what happens and they don't try to sugarcoat it, right? They don't want to leave the bad parts out. In fact, that's actually one aspect that I would say this is the word of God because if any man were trying to preserve the, the terrible things that happened, they would have cut this part out. But God leaves it in there for a specific reason. Um, secondly, this idea of devoting to destruction all women, children, men, uh, donkey, camel, sheep, this was not abnormal in the time of ancient Israel. There's actually a document that was found of 9th century BC, King Mesha of Moab. And the document said this on it. This was Israel's enemy at the time. It says that Moab was to uh, devote to destruction all the Israelites who were in the land, dedicating them to his god, Shemash. I don't know how to say that. But basically, this was something that all nations did. It was normal. It was horrific. But why? How can you say that this is a just command? Well, look at verse 2 when it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have remembered or I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. So what's the history here? Who's the Amalek and who are the Amalekites? All right. They were people that as Israel were, were coming out of the land, they would attack Israel from the rear. All right, so think of it this way. You've got a big horde of people, and they're all moving. And who are the people that get left behind usually? They're the women. They're the pregnant women. They're the weak children. They're the disabled, the Down syndrome, the autistic. They're the disabled people, the poor. And so the Amalekites, what they would do is they would not face man-to-man in battle. They would sit and wait, and they would terrorize the people of Israel by attacking them from the back to take out the weakest of people. They were terrorists. They were literally ancient terrorists. They deserve to die. God is just. And what God is saying to his people is he says, I remember the pain and anguish that you went through during that time. I remember what they did to you and I care for you. I love you. And therefore, I'm going to take care of it now. That's how God is just in his character, you see. He doesn't forget your pain. He doesn't forget the injustice that you go through. He will remember. And he remembers his people and he sends Saul on this mission to devote to destruction. It's simple. He has one task. And so that's the first thing we see is God's just, just command. And so what happens? Look at verse 4. Let's continue on the story. So Saul summoned the people. 
and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 men on foot. That's an incredible number. 200,000 people and 10,000 men. Just imagine being somewhere with 200,000 men. Like that would be absolutely insane. Um, the wrestling matches would be awesome. Um, the boxing matches, I don't know. It just would be rowdy. So 2,000 and then 10,000 men of Judah, verse 5. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and he lay in wait of the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites. That was a separate group of people living with the Amalekites. Lest I destroy you with them. Why? Why is he letting them go free? For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. History lesson. Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. All right? So they're sparing these people, and what does it say? So in verse 6 at the end, so the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And what does Saul do? Verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not be and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Point number two, partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. You see what Saul did there. He partially obeyed. God gave Saul one thing to do. To go and wipe them out. Don't spare anything or anyone. In verse 3. Now I know many of you, you cringe. Uh, you know, we cringe at that. But we already, we already talked about that. But Saul probably felt the same way. And he, he spared Agag. He partially obeys. Son, I have one command before you. Before you go and, and play with your friends. What I need you to do is I need you to kill, or kill, to clean. I need you to kill the fat calf and make it for dinner. No, uh, I need you to clean your room. It's a pigsty. It looks like pigs have been living in there for weeks. I want you to clean it up and I want you to put it in order. You're like, okay, dad, I, I want to do that. I want to obey you. All right, I will do that. And so you go in your room, you take all your stuff and you throw it under the bed, right? You hide it in your closet. You don't put everything away and you, you come and check. See, I did it. Right? It looks clean, but really nothing's put in order. You only partially obeyed. That's exactly what Saul did. He partially obeys. The key word throughout this entire passage is the word listen and hear over and over and over. Obey. Obey the Lord. Listen. And Saul does not listen to God, but rather he defies God. And God and the prophet priest Samuel are now grieved when they hear the news. Look at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back on following me, from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Saul had failed miserably. Why? Because partial obedience is full-scale rebellion against God. It's disobedience. And what is sin? What is sin? Sin is turning your back on the commandments of God. That's what it is. It's breaking God's law. Even the smallest infraction, God is grieved over that. Saul, Samuel is a spokesperson for God. What is Samuel doing? He's grieving. He's crying over Saul's 
sin. He takes sin that seriously. When you disobey God, it is to turn your back on him and his command. I remember an old story a friend told me. It was a story of his childhood. And it was when he grieved his mother's heart at one point. His mother loved him. But it was a a day he was playing video games. He was in his room. It was on a Saturday or a weekend. And his mom calls out to him. He says, son, can you please fill in the blank? I forget what the command was. Take out the trash. You know, come here or do the dishes. And he says, just one second, mom. I'm I'm almost done with this level. I'll, I'll finish it soon and I'll come. All right. A few minutes pass. Again, son, can you please come and do the dishes? Can you come here? Can you, can you help me? I'm almost done. I'm almost done. I'm almost, I'm almost there. I've almost killed the boss. I just got to kill him right now. I'll be there in a second. Minutes passed. The next thing you know, his mom is standing in the doorway. And she's got tears running down her eyes. And she says, son, my son, you love that video game more than you love me. Why? Because he would not obey. His love was for that thing in the moment and not the authority God has put in his life. And that is exactly the same scene here. Saul has disobeyed God. He has shown where his love is. And it's not in a love of God. It's a love of pleasing man. And this gets to my third point. The king who feared people and not God. The king who feared people and not God. So God's just command, partial obedience is disobedience. And now we're going to see why Saul obeyed it's, or disobeyed. It's because he feared people and not God. We're going to finish the text here. It is fabulous. Look at verse 11. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me. He's not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. This, this is like, this is movie stuff here, all right? This is so good. Look at verse 12. Let's keep going. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, a little statue, and turned and pat or memorial, and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. He's happy. He's all happy. You can see him. He's all cheerful. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. (laughs) And Samuel said, What is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Sebastian, do it. Do the the sheep noise. I've, I've obeyed your commands. Do it again. And you can hear the sheep in the background. And, and Samuel calls him out. What is the sheep by here? What is the, the lower of the oxen, right? The lowing of the oxen. You've disobeyed. Boom, roasted. Samuel just destroys him right there. <laughs> he condemns himself. What does Saul say? How does he respond? Verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep. You know, it's not his fault. He just deflects. It's the people who spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to the sacrifice of the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. He stops him. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. 
He's making excuses, and Samuel, in the name of the Lord, stops him. Stop right now. And it's going down. Verse 17. And Samuel said, this is what the Lord said, Thus you are little in your own eyes. Are you not the head? Are you not the king? The head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king. You're supposed to represent them. You're supposed to obey the Lord on behalf of the people. You're supposed to be an example, Saul. Verse 18. And the Lord sent you on a mission. It was a simple mission. And said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on this mission which the Lord sent me, and I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people, again, blaming, the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He's trying to make an excuse. We're going to sacrifice to God. What does Samuel say? Verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Here's the key word. Behold, Phrase, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, you've rebelled, and it's as the sin of witchcraft and presumption, your sin of arrogance, Saul, is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Wow. Verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return to me. See, I think this isn't a true confession. He just wants the blessing of the prophet here. Return to me. uh, Return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. And Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to your neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also, the glory of Israel, that is God, will not lie and have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Then Saul said, I have sinned. But is this true? Is this a true confession? What's the motive here? Yet honor me now before the elders and my people and before Israel. And return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Samuel shows him grace. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, You're going to love this part. Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. He's not going to be punished. He thinks he's off the hook. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. 
Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house. And this is key. Don't miss this. In Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel, this is key. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. All right. The king who feared the people, not God. To fear man. What does it mean to fear man? To fear man is to make people big and God small in your mind and in your life. It's to make people big and God small. It's to overinflate the opinions and concerns of man and to minimize the opinions and concerns and commands of God in your life. You see? To fear man is to not fear God. It's to make man your authority and not God. To fear man is to be controlled by people, what they think of you. And that's what we see in the text. Everything Saul does is calibrated. It is determined by the perceptions, concerns, commands of the people rather than God. And I'll show you this again with your Bibles open. Verse 12, we see that after the victory, he makes a monument for himself. Why? He wants to show himself off. He wants the approval of man. He wants the praise of man. That's why he didn't spare Agag. Why did he keep him alive? He's a trophy. He's a trophy. Look at, look at me. Look what I did. Look at, look at my success. He wants to gain the people's approval. And some history, if you read in 1 Samuel 14, it's because his approval rating is in the dumps, actually. It's because they had a massive defeat and he would not let anyone eat after they won the victory. And so I think he's trying to gain approval from man again. And that's why he says, take the, take the best of the sheep and the ox. I'm a good king. I want your approval. I'm not going to take any blame or responsibility. So that's the first thing he does. In verse, then in verse 15, we see his excuse when Samuel calls him out. He says, they, the reason why there's sheep that you hear is because the people spared the best of the sheep. It's their fault. They wanted the sheep and therefore I gave it to them. Verse 21, he says it again. He blames the people. He says, but the people took the spoil. See, he wasn't leading as king by example. He was doing whatever the people wanted so that he could gain their approval. Verse 24, he says, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He would rather obey people and have his approval be high in the eyes of people rather than God. Verse 30 I have sinned, and Daniel pointed this out to me. When David sinned against Bathsheba, he says, I have sinned against the Lord and the Lord only. But what does Saul say? He says, I have sinned, yet honor me so that my, my approval and my, I won't be embarrassed before the elders and my people and before Israel. He cares so much what people think and so little about what God thinks. What, is it, what do we learn from this, young men? Though this story is about an ancient king and is very relevant for us today, we are just like Saul. I know we can laugh at his stupidity and his failure, but we are just like Saul. That is us. We're never the hero of the story in the Bible. There's only one hero. We fear man in so many different ways, do we not? 
We fear rejection. We try to do everything in our power to make people like us. We'll even sin to get a laugh. We won't speak the truth or stand up for the bullied person because, oh no, we might receive the punishment or lose friends. We make our decisions based on how people will view us. Our parents, now you're called to honor them and obey them, but sometimes you're living for their approval. And so you will make decisions in order to please your mom and dad in the wrong way instead of please God. Or your coach, you're always putting your best foot forward so that you could earn his affection or earn his approval. Or maybe it's the crush that you have. Literally, you will pick the clothes that you want to wear that day in order to impress the girl, hopefully to get her, her, her attention. You'll come to youth group for that reason. Why? You're controlled by people. They control us because we fear that we will be rejected by them. We want their approval. We make all of our decisions based on what people think. And it's not funny. It's sin. It's sin. We fear people more than we fear God. What else do we fear? We fear people that will see us for who we are. (laughs) This is so true of us that some really smart people figured out how to make money off of it by creating social media, right? We're so afraid of what people will think of us so that we could just put our own version of ourselves for all people to see. And then they know that some reason we get addicted to this stuff so that we post a picture and then we get a like and some dopamine goes off in our brain and now we're addicted and we just want more and more, more people's approval. My satisfaction, my hope, my security, my happiness is rooted in what people think of me. If I don't get as many likes, I'm kind of hurt. If that one girl doesn't like my picture, I'm mad. I'm gonna, I gotta do a better, I gotta do a better job. We're so scared of putting our real selves out there, people finding out who we really are. This only produces a life of comparison as well. For those, some of you, you compare constantly to other people. You are driven by comparison. You're either left in despair because you're compared to that person who's doing more successful than you, and you shame yourself for that because you're living for their approval. Or you're filled with pride because you look down on other people. Still, the problem is the same. You want people's approval rather than God's. That's what you're living for. That's your idol. That's your God. Like Saul, fear of man blinds us to our own sin. And it reveals our own proud and arrogant heart. Kevin Young says this. He says, there is no sin so prevalent, so insidious, and so deep as the sin of fearing people more than we fear God. What's the result of fearing man? Well, we read it in the last verse here. It's rejection, separation, and isolation. Rejection, separation, and isolation. This is the result of living your life for the approval of people. Where does it get solved? You want to live life like Saul for man's approval? This is where it gets you. It gets you in in verse 34. Look at it again. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went to the house of Gibeah. And Samuel did not see Saul again to the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. Now, why is that important? Because the way that God would communicate his blessing and his word to people was through Samuel. And so if Samuel is God's spokesman and Samuel is cut off from Saul, what does that mean about Saul? It means that he is cut off from hearing the word of the Lord. 
He's cut off. He's separated from the prophet and the priest. What do priests do? They intercede on your behalf. They make sacrifices for your sin that point to Jesus ultimately. Saul doesn't have a Samuel. He doesn't have a prophet or a priest. He then, his life just goes downhill from that. And he continues to live in rejection. He doesn't truly repent. He lives for himself. And it only gets worse from 1 Samuel 15 all the way to 1 Samuel 30. As he hunts down David. See, if you make people your God, your idol, your hope, the source of your happiness, satisfaction, security. If you do that, they will reject you. People will ultimately leave you and forsake you. And God will reject you if you don't repent. If you live for the approval of man, you find yourself, you will find yourself hating people and not loving people. Why? Because you're trying to find your satisfaction and hope in people. You don't really love them. You just want to get things from them. You're needy. You're needy, so you suck all the life out of people. And then no one wants to be your friend. We cannot be a ministry that fears people. We need, to, we need to be a ministry that fears God and loves people. Loves, genuinely loves people. Gives to people. Doesn't find our satisfaction in people, but finds it in God. Therefore, we can love. See, Saul lived his life for people. And what did he get He got a piece of Samuel's robe that reminded him that God rejected him. That's what he got. Friends, we are all like Saul in one way or another. Some portions of our lives, we fear man and not God. People are big and God is small. And if you're not convinced, I want to read from this book, When People Are Big and God is Small. And I want to ask you some questions that will test you whether or not you truly fear man. I'm just going to read these, and I want you to listen. And I want you to ask the question, do any of these things apply to me? Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Peer pressure is simply a euphemism or another word for the fear of man. If you experienced it when you were younger, believe me, it's still there. Are you overcommitted? Do you find that it is hard to say no, even when wisdom indicates that you should? No to people. You are a people pleaser then. That's another word for you fear man. Do you need something from people? Do you need your friends to listen to you and to respect you? If so, you fear them. Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? This is at least normal in the United States. This is the most popular way that the fear of other people is expressed. If self-esteem is a reoccurring theme for you, chances are that your life revolves around what other people's People think you reverence or fear their apparent uh, opinions. You need them to buttress your sense of well-being and identity. You need them to fill you up. Here's another. Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? (laughs) Many business executives and apparently successful people do. The sense of being exposed is an expression of the fear of man. It means that opinions of other people, especially their possible opinion that you are a failure, are able to control you. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in front of other people? Then you probably fear man. Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you experience love hunger in your singleness? Here again, if you need others to fill you up, you are controlled by them. 
And that applies to married people as well. If we're trying to find our hope and satisfaction in our spouses, then we probably fear man. Do you easily get embarrassed? If so, and their, is, and, and their perceived opinions probably define you. Or to use biblical language, you exalt the opinions of others to the point where you are ruled by them. Do you ever lie? Especially if it's a little white lie. What about cover-ups where you are not technically lying with your mouth? Lying in other forms of living in the dark are usually ways to make ourselves look better before other people. They serve to cover our shame before them. Are you jealous of other people? You are controlled by them and their possessions then. Do other people make you angry or depressed? Are they making you crazy? If so, they probably are controlling the center, the, the controlling center of your life. Do you avoid people? <laughs> if so, even though you might not say that you need people, you are still controlled by them. Isn't a hermit dominated by a fear of man? Right? Aren't mo- Here's a good one. Aren't most diets and workout plans, even when they are ostensibly under the heading of health, dedicated to impressing others? The desire for the praise of men is one of the ways we exalt people above God. Have all these descriptions missed the mark? When you compare yourself with other people, do you feel good about yourselves? I already mentioned that. Then you probably fear man. <laughs> Should we go home here? Just feeling depressed and down? Probably not. We all fall into this category, right? Every single one of us. That book and this Bible describes us. We fear man. And the fear of man is sin against God. And I can't send you home because that would mean that I'm leaving you with all law and and feeling exposed, right? We need our sins forgiven. I don't want to guilt you. I just did with the law. That's my purpose. But I want to point you to a better king. I want to point you to hope. I want to point you to a source of satisfaction that will never let you down. And this is my last point, and it's the shortest. It's the king that loved people and feared God. We need a king that loved people and feared God. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across a king, a prophet, and a priest, you know that that always points to someone else, someone that we need, a better prophet, priest, and king. If there's anything positive in the text, it's the prophet and priest Samuel who acts as a mediator before God and Saul. Samuel fears God. He obeys God to the point of hacking Agag to pieces. He mediates justice and also mercy. He shows mercy to Saul. But in the end, Samuel cannot give what Saul and us truly need. We need a better representative, a better king, a better prophet, and a better king. And who could that be? What is your only hope, friend? His name is Jesus. 2,000 years after this, or 1,000 years after this text was written, one would come who would be a better prophet, priest, and king who would mediate between God and us. Jesus is the better Saul. How is he better than Saul? He obeys God's law perfectly, completely, not partially, in all the way. Jesus is the better Saul who loved those like Saul and like us who turn our backs upon God and his command to love love the Lord. He loves people who fear man. (laughs) Jesus is the better Saul who is not controlled by the people and the masses, but instead loved them and died for them. Jesus is the better Saul who did not blame shift or try to get around God's command. He was not self-serving, but he was self-sacrificial for you. 
And Jesus is the better Saul who is rejected, separated, and isolated so that we who fear man may be accepted and brought near to God. Jesus was rejected so that you may be accepted. That's the good news of the gospel. That's your only hope. And Jesus is the better Samuel, the better prophet, who when we sin doesn't speak a harsh word to us, but instead invites us to come. And so if you feel the shame and guilt of your own fear of man, you recognize that as a problem, come to Jesus tonight. Come, believer, come to Jesus and find forgiveness and mercy in him. He will forgive you and he will wash you and cleanse you. And he will give you his Holy Spirit so that you don't fear man. Look, I'm a believer. I've been walking with Jesus for years. I still struggle with the fear of man, but I have hope. It doesn't dominate me because I have the Holy Spirit in me and I have God's word and I have a king who conquered sin and death for me. And I want that king to be yours as well tonight. Will you trust in him? Fear God. Do not fear man. Man can only kill your body, but fear the one who could kill your body and your soul in hell forever. Trust in Jesus, repent, and turn to him tonight. My hope, young men, is that you would be warriors for Jesus. And you know what it means to be a warrior? Doesn't mean you need to grow a beard. Doesn't mean that you need to lift weights. Doesn't mean that you need to be good at sports. It just means that you need to fear God and obey his commands to love him, to worship him, to worship God and not man, to fear God and not man, to live for God and not man. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, he who fears God has nothing else to fear. We need mighty warriors. And those mighty warriors for Jesus are gonna be people who fear God and not man. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. You feel weary and tired, you need life. The fear of the Lord, the worship, the awe of the Lord. That's what fear means. That one may turn away from the snares of death. Luke 150, that the mercy of God is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Find mercy in God tonight by turning from your sin of fearing man and trusting in him. Let's pray.